Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're a part of this time of studying God's Word. I'd love to introduce you to a story by beloved author John Ortberg. This story helps us to focus on what we engage with in God's Word today. Ortberg wrote this, Imagine you were handed a script of the entire life of your child, and you were given a divine eraser to erase all of those difficulties and traumas facing your child. You are allowed to erase disappointments, disabilities, setbacks, broken relationships, sicknesses, accidents, etc. If you can erase every failure, every disappointment, and every period of suffering, Ortberg asked, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into being the very best version of themselves? Ortberg comments that sometimes stressful and painful situations actually help us to grow. Is it possible that we need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crises and dramas, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all of our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. And then Orberg makes this conclusion that I pray you'll hold tight to in these moments and always. God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances, producing the me that he wants. Now, share that with you because if you and I can resonate with this in our own lives of struggles and trials, then we can understand the message of Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. At the conclusion of Mark chapter 4 and throughout chapter 5, we discover difficulties that face real people at real times, in real situations. And inside of those difficulties, Jesus made a way through. He moved individuals forward, even through difficulties, as each one trusted in him. So as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, I welcome you into the title of this study, A Way Through, Problems, people, and the power of Jesus. We'll understand that God did not necessarily take people from their dilemmas, but he met them through Christ inside of their dilemmas and moved them through so that their faith would, would soar and would, would embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. So I pray that today, if you are seeking a way through whatever you need to be working through, if you're seeking to resolve problems, people, and the power of Jesus, or lean into these, to these true episodes in the continuing narrative of Mark's gospel. I'd like to share with you three familiar circumstances right from the gospel of Mark and the way through. Three familiar circumstances and the way through. Let's begin 
in the opening episode of this sequence of narratives, which actually takes place at the end of chapter 4. When last we were together in Mark's gospel, we heard Jesus teaching through parables about his kingdom. On that same day, after all the teaching and the interaction that Jesus engaged with concerning the crowd and his disciples, there is an event that became transformative in the life of his followers, particularly the 12 disciples. So join me in Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35, as we come to the first of several narrative episodes concerning how Jesus will make a way through uh, these trying and difficult circumstances. This passage opens us to that moment when Jesus calmed the storm, addressing a very familiar challenge for many of us, that ever prevailing challenge of fear. Let's enter the story, beginning with verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, meaning the day when Jesus had been teaching, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took along with the, they took Jesus along with them in the boat. And as he was there, the other boats joined them. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up with water. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on cushions. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus got up, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died and became perfectly calm. Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said one to another, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? In this story, consider the problem, the people, and the power of Jesus. First, the problem obviously references this storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, no doubt the disciples who were seasoned fishermen had seen squalls of of similar nature, but this particular encounter showed an amazingly difficult and surging sea uh, pushed by the winds and the storm that had arisen. So much so that these seasoned fishermen and and captains of their own vessels became very fearful that they could perish. They did not understand why Jesus was peacefully asleep and they were facing what they thought would be imminent doom. So the problem exists concerning the storm and the human response to like storms, fear. The disciples truly saw that, that this storm was overtaking the one to whom they had been listening and following and who had been performing amazing miracles. And, and this, this storm, came at a time when there was an, a, an amazing level of stressfulness. You see, when this passage opens, they had come to the end of a day, and Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus as he was in the boat, and they left. All of this indicates that an entire day of, of interaction with the crowd became very taxing on, 
on the entire group, the disciples. And, and the whole event referenced a, a stressful encounter with the crowd. So consider in the problem first this uh, unique stressfulness caused by a full day of activity and the crowd pressing in. But, but second, consider that we are allowed to peer in not only to the stressfulness, but to the humanness of our Lord. Jesus, fully God and fully man, demonstrated here a side of his humanness, that which Mark would call throughout his narrative, the Son of Man. And in that humanness, Jesus was, was in the boat with the disciples and went to sleep. This was not the first occasion where Jesus indicated, not at the expense of his divinity, but simply as a, as a demonstration of his humanity that he was fatigued. Other places show that Jesus was hungry and tired and thirsty. But here, Jesus being fatigued from that stressfulness fell asleep in the stern of the boat. So the problem demonstrated a, a unique stressfulness, an unexpected humanness, but then a fierce storm that was very uncommon. So the stressfulness, the humanness, and the uncommonness of this storm developed this problem that really beset the disciples back into an absence of faith that seemed to contradict their dependence upon the one that they had seen up to this point, performing many miracles and demonstrating the power of God over all things that would oppose mankind. And so here, the problem becomes apparent. The, the uncommonness of the storm becomes evidenced in the topography of the, the lake of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. The, the topography would represent uh, the lake being surrounded on three sides by uh, mountains and not atypical to, to storms that would arise. There would be a cool current blowing that would be brought down into vortices inside of this mountain range, creating a circular motion of wind. And particularly this event seemed to demonstrate strong vortices, that, that vortex of, of weather that would push down on the water and would push and, and topple any vessel. That becomes the, the uncommonness of this, of this storm. And the disciples cried out, we, we've looked at the problem, so now let's look at the people, the disciples. Here they become postured in the vessel with our Lord and they approach Jesus and they say in verse 38, do you not care that we are perishing? Now the gospel of Matthew and Luke are a bit more kind to the disciples as those gospels record the disciples saying, Jesus, we could perish. But here Mark shows the bluntness and the and the very um, embryonic nature of the disciples' faith as they actually cry out, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, sometimes problems do affect us in this manner where we, we lose sight of the true identity of our Lord and our view of him depreciates as our view of the circumstance exaggerates. It's not uncommon for many who claim to walk by faith, allow the storm to depreciate our view of Christ and to exaggerate our view of the circumstance. This becomes a reality of the disciples as they cried out, Jesus, do you not care that we're 
perishing. So we've looked at the problem and the people, meaning the disciples, but now let's look at the power of Christ. So Jesus stood and he said, peace be still. In fact, the scripture reminds us that Jesus actually rebuked the storm. Epitemao represents the Greek term from where we derive the interpretation rebuke. Now, share that with you to simply indicate that that exact word was already used by Mark in chapter 1, verse 25, when we are told that Jesus rebuked the demonic spirit that was in the one who was seated in the, in the synagogue. And that same statement of rebuke represents the authority Jesus had even over the demonic spirit. So here in chapter 4, verse 39, the Mark narrative demonstrates Jesus rebuking the wind as if the sea itself were alive. And this becomes uh, reminiscent of of the psalmist view of Moses at the Red Sea. The psalmist said in Psalm 106, verse 9, in reminiscing uh, of God's faithfulness to Israel, that Moses stood at the Red Sea and, and rebuked the waters and they parted. So the demonstration here by Christ references the very power of God over all things embodied in the person of Jesus. And so the power of Christ became demonstrated as he rebuked the sea and the sea became perfectly calm. There's a play on words here in this passage that I love when the scripture uh, describes the wind as being great and the storm as being great. Equally, the calm becomes described by the same word as being great. There was a great storm and there was a great calm. The size of your storm will show you the size of the peace that Jesus desires to bring into your life. And this became the experience of the disciples. Their response was not what you might have thought. Their response was not one of increased faith at this point, but their response was continued fear because they could not understand Jesus. And, and the entire Mark narrative focuses on this one truth. This is Jesus. Mark's narrative demonstrates the full identity of, of Jesus as son of God and son of man. But the question becomes protracted all throughout the gospel. Who is this one? And here the disciples ask among themselves, who is this one that the wind and the sea obeys? And so when fear has set in, we need to remember that Jesus has authority even over the storms of nature. And if he himself possesses all authority to control nature, then whatever brings you fear at this moment is subdued by the very presence of Christ. So do not go any further in these episodes without being reminded that a powerful reality that moves us forward comes to us through this episode of Jesus calming the storm and the very familiar challenge of fear. I'm sure there are times when we've all thrown our hands up and have said, this is it, no more. I've had it, I can't go forward. I'm done. 
the disciples were beside themselves in fear. Seasoned fishermen, fearing in their own element that they may perish. Jesus showed his authority over all of creation by calming the sea. And it became perfectly and greatly calm. So remember when you are fearful that Jesus himself brings the authority, the full authority over all of creation into your life to give you victory, to give you faith, and to give you purpose even in the midst of your storm. So I pray that you're encouraged by, uh, by this incredible truth. Uh, there's a unique story that comes to us about holding tight to our fears, even as the disciples were tempted to do on the sea that day. And I want to share this story with you because I believe this helps us to step more fully into the application of the narrative. For four hours, he held the cylinder, waiting for rescue or an immediate death. After digging up what appeared to be an unexploded World War I bomb, David Page held onto it, afraid that letting go of it would detonate the device. While holding onto the bomb, the terrified 40-year-old from Norfolk, England, called an emergency operator on his mobile phone. He even used the call to issue his last words to his family. He knew that he was done. Uh, the, the woman police operator kept saying that it would be okay, but Paige responded, you can say that all you want, but you're not the one holding the bomb. The first responders rushed to the workyard in eastern England, and army bomb disposal experts finally arrived, but the drama came to an abrupt end when the bomb was identified. It was actually not a bomb. It just looked like a bomb, but it was part of a hydraulic suspension from an old car that had been buried. You see, we chuckle at that story, but there are times we find ourselves frozen with irrational fear. We know that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, but we forget the strength of our protector while we clutch our fear. Whatever you are tempted to clutch fearfully today, let that go. It's not a bomb. And you are going to be okay. Trust in the one who can bring calm to our storms. Now, as, as the sea became calm, we notice a movement in the narrative that is without break concerning the narrative that God spoke through Mark. Verse 41 of chapter 4, they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey? And then after that, they came to the other side of the sea. So the narrative continues and the progression of Jesus and his disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee continues. So they came to the other side. We will discover later that the movement was from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east. So they arrive, and when they come near to the country of the Gerasenes, chapter 5, verse 1, they got out of the boat. Jesus stood out of the boat, and immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Jesus and his disciples come through this tumultuous experience of a storm, unlike that which they've not seen 
on the Sea of Galilee, they arrived to the eastern shore near a place called the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes. The, the difference in pronunciation depends upon the translation, but this is near a place called Gerasa, which was more of a region, a topography uh, and a toparchy than, than an actual common place. And this represented the region where there were many hills about one mile inland. And these hills had many places of caverns that were served as tombs. And the scripture describes a man loose among these tombs, terrifying those who would pass by from the, from the shore of Galilee into Gerasa and other cities. And this, this horrific picture would be a man who would, who would be shackled by the authorities to keep him from hurting himself and others, but would break the shackles and would continue to cry out loudly. And this happened day and night. Look at verse 5 of chapter 5 of Mark. Constantly night and day he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gnashing, gashing himself with stones. Now when Jesus got out of the boat, this is what happened. Seeing Jesus from a distance, this man ran up to him and bowed down before him, shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do you have do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And the man said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there were a large, a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountains. The demons implored Jesus, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What an amazing episode that demonstrates a second challenge that can be common even in our day. From fear, we moved to a darkness that was very prevalent in this setting. Now, you may have never encountered an individual possessed as this, and I certainly hope that you would never have to see or hear such a possession. But nonetheless, the source of that possession represents the darkness of Satan himself. And that darkness becomes pervasive even in this present culture. And so now we're faced not just with the challenge of fear, but the challenge of darkness, of the oppressiveness that, that Satan himself can bring. And Jesus, as he provided a way through fear, most assuredly can provide a way through darkness. So darkness becomes defeated and those oppressed by darkness become restored and freed. So this individual represents first the problem We'll do as we did in the previous episode. We'll look at the problem, the people, and the power of Christ. The problem was certain the darkness that, that had overtaken this man. He gashed himself. He would be chained by what would be uh, perhaps the authorities from Gerasa or other cities that would come in and try to subdue him. But he would break those and he would torment all who had passed by that area. And so the problem was the presence of darkness. You know, the scripture reminds us in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan himself is the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we are told that Satan represents the God of this world, the one that controls and manipulates lives in this world. 
We're told also in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that Satan represents the accusers of the brethren. In Matthew 4, verse 1, Satan himself becomes the one who subdues and, and oppresses. So we know as a piece of our Christian theology that Satan's activity is real. The Bible describes this. We can't deny this. But that activity is so very limited in the face of the truth of Jesus Christ. But the problem here represented the darkness, but not just the darkness, the darkness that was oppressive. The darkness oppressed the individual and that entire setting. So we move from the problem to the people. And we do not know much about the community surrounding this region that will later be identified as Decapolis. But we do know that this was a Gentile area. And we do know that the people there representing this community could not subdue this man, but, but stood intimidated by him and certainly saw nothing but chaos. And that's exactly what the enemy desires to do. The enemy desires to bring chaos and to bring intimidation and to take away all hope of, of freedom and life. And this becomes a reality here. And the people in that area saw this. We move from the problem to the people. And now we move to the power of Christ. Notice in this very narrative, when Jesus stood out of the boat, the man who was possessed became subdued. And then Jesus talked with him, but actually spoke to the demons. The demons identified themselves as legion, an old Roman word that actually could, could define over 6,000 soldiers. And I believe this becomes emphasized in Mark's gospel because history will teach us, the background of this narrative teaches us that Mark was writing primarily to a Roman audience. And so the emphasis of legion became very significant in meaning there were a significant amount of demonic spirits possessing this man. We are not told how this happened. We are not told of, of the man's origin. We're simply told that there was a large number of demonic spirits possessing this man and causing chaos and intimidation and captivity and harm and danger and destruction. The enemy desires to destroy above all things, even though he is appearing to some as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians as an angel of light, Satan himself disguises so that he might entice people in to destruction. And we see this very reality evidenced here. And then the, uh, the interchange between Jesus and the demonic voices inside this man are, are, are a fascinating encounter and exchange. And so Jesus had been saying, come out of him, unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked, what is your name? Not because Jesus did not know, but because Jesus was establishing his authority completely over this demonic presence. And then the demons earnestly employed that they not be sent out of the countryside. This demonstrated in verse 11, their desire, their appetite to destroy. And the demon said, send us into the swine. And Jesus did that and the swine were destroyed. Now, please don't think that Jesus subjugated himself to the uh, demon's request. Absolutely not. But the emphasis, again, was not upon the large number, but upon the one possessed. And Jesus was in full control of the situation and desired that the relief of that demonic oppression would be noted by all, because all had noted how subdued this man was to the demonic presence. And so Jesus sent those demonic spirits out, which would have been unseen without the swine. But Jesus desired that those around would see evidence of the oppression and then see the greatness of the freedom. The size of your oppression announces the size of your freedom. 
Jesus will completely overcome what oppresses and what, what confines and binds us. And this became the reality. The swine were destroyed as the man became free. Now, obviously, Mark, Matthew, and Luke do not discount the value of the swine nor the income, but they are emphasizing the value of the soul and that soul that became free from the demonic oppression. Picking up in verse 14, the herdsmen, meaning the owners of the flock, ran to the city and reported what had happened. And the people came to see. They came to Jesus and observed that this man who was demon-possessed was sitting clothed and in his right mind. And the very man who had had the legion had been freed and the people became frightened just as the disciples were frightened when Jesus controlled the waters. The entire region around Decapolis became frightened to see that Jesus had controlled the demonic presence. And they began to employ Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the demon-possessed man came to him and employed to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go to your people and report to them what great things had happened. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Mark seems to be opening up the mission to the Gentile right here in this episode. And I love the emphasis of the Decapolis, this, this Greek model of 10 cities that became formed and then... Uh, years before this event, had been held captive and then was uh, freed again and liberated under Roman rule. And these cities represented a, a Greek model of, of existence and community that certainly personified here the Gentile nations. And Mark's gospel allows us to see beyond the impact upon the Jews to this amazing area where the gospel began to be fully understood through one who had been possessed, but indeed was made free. And we, we celebrate this truth and we thank God that even in the face of darkness, victory and freedom can come through Christ. So much as in our fear, we remember that Jesus had authority over all things, including nature. In our moments of darkness, when we feel the enemy tempting us and defeating us, we know that Jesus has all authority over all things that are dark, over Satan himself. And we can trust him and trust his authority over the moments of darkness that can invade our own lives and, and attempt to bring destruction and chaos and intimidation and, and devastation. I'm reminded of a story that I'm sure I shared with you once about General Jonathan Wainwright, who was held captive by the Japanese in a concentration camp. He was cruelly treated. He became broken, crushed, and hopeless and a starving man. But finally, when the Japanese surrendered and the war ended, a United States Army colonel was sent to the camp to announce personally to the general that Japan had been defeated and that he was free and in command. I love what happened next. Wainwright heard the news and without any ammunition or, or being armed, he returned to his quarters and was confronted by some guards who had been mistreating him and, and were mistreating him at the moment. Wainwright, however, with the news a victory fresh on his mind, declared authority and said, no, I'm in command here now. These are my orders. And from that moment on, General Wainwright was in control. I love that story because that story helps us to remember that oftentimes in our defeat, we forget we've been liberated and Jesus's authority has set us free and we need not live subjective to the darkness of this world. Jesus has 
brought liberation and freedom because of his authority over the darkness. And that same authority can free us from those moments of doubt, those moments of darkness that seemingly fight against our faith. Oh, yes, the moment of darkness was overcome by the authority of Jesus. And this brings us such encouragement. And we move into the last portion of this series of episodes and we, we come to, uh, to the end of verse, uh, of, of chapter five, uh, as we, as we begin reading again in verse 21. And Jesus had crossed over again to the other side. Now, Jesus is still with the disciples in the, in the uh, sailing vessel. They have moved from the west to the east side to the garrisons where where the demonic man had entreated them and where he was freed. But now, according to verse 21, they sail back across and they come almost to the place near Capernaum on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And as they arrived on the shore, back across to the west side of the sea now, one of these synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing Jesus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and, and lay your hands on her and she'll be healed and made alive. And Jesus went off with him. But while Jesus went on with him, there was a crowd pressing in and a woman in the crowd had been sick for 12 years and she pressed against Jesus. And she thought, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. And she touched the edge of his cloak. I'm reading now from verse 26 through 27. And in verse 28, she thought, if I can touch him, I'll be healed. And immediately she touched him and her blood disease dried up immediately. Verse 30, Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him and said, who's touching me? And the disciples said, Jesus, do you not see the crowd pressing in? Why would you ask such a question? Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told the whole truth. And said, to, and Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has been made well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, before we move any further, notice two examples of hopelessness as we come to a final challenge that is not dissimilar at all to the challenges we face today. Hopelessness of the diseased woman who had been sick for 12 years and had tried and doctors could not heal her. And I find it amazing that Mark becomes very specific about the fact that doctors could not heal her. Now, when you read this story in Luke, Luke, the doctor and the gospel writer, he doesn't mention that the doctors couldn't heal. He just said no one could heal her. But we know the inference there is, is here in Mark literally. No doctor could bring healing. And so she was desperate. She was hopeless. In fact, the scripture reminds us she had spent all she had to, to find healing and nothing could help her. She desperately reached out, perhaps driven by some, some, uh, ancient, uh, uh, remedy that was, was actually a folklore thinking if I could just touch his garments, maybe there would be power in his clothing. She reached out to touch the edge of his garments and actually she received the healing of our Lord. Jesus turned to ask, who touched me? Again, Jesus was not unaware, but wanted to demonstrate and expose that this woman had been healed. He did not want her to stay in the secret place, but he desired that her life would be changed so that all would know the power that had affected her and brought hope to her otherwise hopeless circumstance. Jesus brought that healing. Now we continue reading. Jesus had been on his way to Jairus' house, this synagogue official. Uh, not a priest, but an official, one who superintended the synagogue there in Capernaum. And he had cried out, Jesus, 
I have faith that if you touch my daughter, she will be brought back to life. And she had been sick. But at this moment, Jairus had been informed that because of the delay, she had died. And in that dying state, in that announcement, Jairus' closest friends said, listen, don't bother Jesus any longer. Why trouble the teacher? Verse 35. But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to Jairus, hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. Now, Jesus has said to the sick woman, your faith has made you whole. Jesus has said to the disciples, hey, your faith still needs to grow. Jesus said to Jairus, a synagogue official, just believe. Again, the emphasis running throughout these narratives as a powerful common thread represents the call to believe and what Christ can do in the midst of our challenges. And here again, we see that Jairus faced, like the sick woman in the crowd, hopelessness. Death has come. You might as well not bother the teacher, Jairus' friends advised. But Jesus said, just believe. Now, Jesus and Jairus continued to Jairus' house. Jesus made everyone stay back except Peter, James, and John. Because Jesus knew these key leaders in the discipleship ranks needed to see what would happen next. The others were not prepared for this. And so when Jesus arrived at Jairus' house, he saw a commotion, verse 39, verse 38 and 39, because there were many there who were already mourning. Jesus said in verse 39, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Jesus did not mean that she was in a comatose state. Jesus knew she was dead. But Jesus used the analogy of sleep knowing that she would not be dead long. Her death would not be final. But the crowd laughed at Jesus. But putting them all out, Jesus said, move away. And he took the child's father and mother and the three disciples. He went into the child's room. And Jesus walked over beside the bed where she had died, picked up her hand and said, Talitha kum, Aramaic for little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. She was old enough to walk. And she began walking. And immediately everyone there in the room, the parents and the three disciples, were astounded. And Jesus said, no one should know about this, but give her something to eat. Again, such an amazing story that moved people in their faith through hopelessness to Jesus. Jesus again becomes the answer in hopelessness, even as he was in the fear and in the darkness. So here, the woman in the crowd who was sick was hopeless, could not find help. She touched Jesus and was healed. And here, Jairus was advised not to bother Jesus any longer because his sick daughter had died. But Jesus said, it's not too late, just believe. And Jairus saw his daughter brought back to life. And Jesus told Jairus and his wife and the disciples not to tell anyone. And the reason was not to subdue the miracle, but to make certain that those who are ready to understand the messianic dignity of Christ could understand it because those outside were not ready, especially the superficial mourners who were like professional mourners. Jewish tradition would teach us that mourners would actually be gathered and would give some type of antiphonal singing and hand clapping to demonstrate a ritual-like mourning. And they had already gathered. Jesus simply referred to that as commotion. And they were superficial in their mourning because when Jesus announced that the daughter was asleep, they all began laughing at him. They knew she had died. But Jesus dismissed those who were not ready to see the power of the Messiah and took those who needed to have the impact and saw this precious one brought 
to life. What an amazing reminder that even in our hopelessness, Jesus is the answer. So in our fear, the authority of Jesus over nature should give us courage to trust him. In our darkness, Jesus with authority over all that is demonic and oppressive, his authority should give us freedom from that darkness can, that, that can uh, attempt to invade our own lives. And here, in the face of death, Jesus looked at the hopelessness and demonstrated his authority even over death, which gave hope to those who had once given up. And what an amazing picture we have of Jesus bringing individuals through the difficulty and forward in faith. Jesus never once allowed them to stay in their hopelessness, in their darkness, in their fear, but brought them through. I close with a statement that was made by Carl Sagan's wife after he died. Carl Sagan was an atheist who denounced he was an atheist, but never fully stated that, that anyone could know that God existed. And he did so very emphatically and very proud and with, with a lot of pride. After he died, uh, there was an interview with his wife, Anne Druyan. And this is what she said concerning her husband's death. There was no deathbed conversion. There were no appeals to God, no hope for an afterlife, no pretending that he and I, who had been inseparable for 20 years, were, were not going to say goodbye forever. None of that. He simply died. She was then asked, did he not want to believe? And she said, and hear this, Carl never wanted to believe. He simply wanted to know. There are many today who are living their lives supposedly on some proclaimed faith simply because they know things. Jesus here, as he does in all situations, calls us not to just know, but to believe and to trust him. And so today, as we move forward in our faith, the call becomes very simple. In fear, trust his authority over all things that can bring fear. In darkness, trust his authority over all things that can bring satanic oppression and sinful darkness. And in hopelessness, trust his authority over death itself, who brings hope even in the face of the grave. So trust Jesus, trust him emphatically. Don't simply desire to know, desire to trust him with all of your heart, as in your trials, you allow him to move you forward in your faith. Father God, thank you for this moment we've had in your word. Take us forward in our faith as we trust you emphatically in all circumstances that seem so negative and challenging, yet you will make a way through as we trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Hey, there's a website location on the screen. I hope you'll check that out. This is our way of creating dialogue with you. We really want you to reach out and not just view but participate. Reach out. If you want to know what it means to trust Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, we can have a conversation with you. Please reach out and know that our prayers are with you as you continue to open your eyes to the truth of Jesus and to follow him. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, I'll see you in seven days as we move even further into our study of the Gospel of Mark. Love you a lot. God bless. See you soon. Mm -hmm.